Good day, hello and fall chan. Thanks for tuning in to Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion, founder of the Human Centred Design Network. I'm a service design practitioner based in Dublin City, Ireland, and I run Humana Design, a practice dedicated in helping organisations grow their internal design capabilities. We offer public and private coaching and training in service design and UX. Ava Penzimug is joining me on the show today. Ava is a lead designer for 8th Light and is based in the Windy City, Chicago, one of my favourite cities. Now, we connected recently over Twitter after I became aware of her work that's related to the interconnected relationships between smart devices and domestic violence. Now, we go into the contextual examples of how these so-called smart devices can be used to evoke various types of traumas. And we speak openly about researching in and around people with trauma and how to protect yourself a designer and a researcher, something that is a topic that is very close to my heart and something that I've actually spoken about publicly in the past. Before we jump in, though, there's a number of topics in this episode that may act as a trigger for people who are survivors of domestic violence. So we wanted to make that aware before we start playing the episode. If you're in the US, Eva is speaking at a number of conferences this summer, and I'll throw a video link to one of her talks into the show notes. But for now, let's sit back and enjoy the conversation. Eva Penzimug, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. Thanks so much for having me. We're delighted to have you here. Um, I stumbled across your work recently on Twitter, which we'll come back to at some point. But today we're going to be talking about a really interesting project that I stumbled across and that was designing against domestic violence. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, you, where you are and how this project came about. Sure. So I'm in Chicago. Uh, That's where I work and live. And a little bit about how the work came about. Uh, About six years ago, I became a certified rape crisis counselor, which here in the States means that I was certified to go into emergency rooms and help people who were there seeking services after a sexual assault. And I did that for a while. And um, that training, as well as that experience, involved a lot of work with people who were experiencing domestic violence. So I became pretty well-versed in it uh, from like a training standpoint, just understanding just the nuts and bolts of how it works. There, people think they understand, like, oh, it's you know someone hurting someone else, but there's really a lot of psychology and different things that go into it from personal and societal and legal levels. So um, I started to learn a lot about it, and then of course, just as as a woman existing in this world, and just based on the statistics in America, it's one in three women who will experience domestic violence, and it's one in four men. So once you start to become seen by your friend group as someone who knows more about this topic, people start really coming to you. So definitely also have a lot of personal experience with friends and friends of friends who have reached out to me and who I've helped through leaving abusive relationships or helping, you know, a friend's sister or whatever. So I've been doing that type of work for a while now. And then previous to working in tech, I worked at a nonprofit and uh, we worked with kids And at one point, we partnered up with a domestic violence prevention nonprofit who was interested in kind of expanding their work into into the space of working with kids. So they gave us a very, very basic training to give to our people who were doing the actual work with the kids. And the nonprofit I was working at, they came to me and were like, we think that this could be a little bit better. Can you help us make it better? And I was like, absolutely. So I took it and made it into a two-hour workshop about domestic violence. So I've, I did that for hundreds of people who work with kids. And then I sort of started doing it as a volunteer for, for union groups, for anyone who wanted it really. 
I've done it, you know, in my workplace, I've done it in just random places because it's sort of just what is domestic violence and how, how can we support survivors going through it? And by the way, I prefer, and most people prefer the term survivor over victim because it centers the person yeah. going through it and speaks to the fact that they're surviving a really dangerous situation. So that's what I mean when I say survivor uh, instead of victim. So I have this workshop that I do and I've been doing it for about five years now. And then three years ago, I switched careers and entered tech as a user experience designer. I also do front end development and started seeing all of these ways that technology is enabling domestic violence or sometimes the actual violence itself is being done with technology. And I started collecting all these different examples and I thought certainly someone else must be already working on this and thinking about it, but I couldn't find anything. So I was like, all right, this is going to be me. So I started putting together my talk and it really just involves a lot of different examples about ways that technology is enabling abuse as well as missing opportunities to offer some type of meaningful intervention after it, some user behavior makes it clear that abuse is happening. Yeah. And that in itself is a really good premise for a conversation like the, the role of technology is playing as an enabler for domestic abuse is really interesting to me. Like, so tell us a little bit more about your findings in that space. Sure. So the work that I'm doing, I'm sort of collecting examples and thinking about ways that uh, we can design against these sorts of things in a few different areas. So there's uh, financial abuse, which is really, really common. 98% in America, 98% of people who are experiencing domestic violence, there's an element of financial abuse. So this is a really important space to focus on because you could theoretically reach almost every single person going through it by focusing on the financial abuse element. So for example, you know, married couples often have a joint bank account and most joint bank accounts are sort of just a normal bank account that two people have access to, but often there's just one username and password. And that, I mean, it gives both people power, but, you know, normally it's the man in the relationship who's going to take more of that power or uh, find a way to exploit it through a domestic violence lens. So you can just change the password and suddenly the other person doesn't have access. These are all true stories that I've anonymized and sort of like stitched together to make them even more anonymous, but they're all true stories, mostly that people have shared with me and then a few things that I've found just online in my research. So this was Helen and Isaac as this couple, and they went together to the bank to set up their joint bank account, and then he got put as the primary user. So in America, there's these identity verification questions. So it'll be like five different questions anytime there's any type of security risk, which can be as something as little as you're logging on from a new Wi-Fi network. And I get these all the time in my banking. So it'll be like, which street did you live on during this time period? Or which of these states have you lived in? And they're specific enough that even with a married partner, you probably don't know like, yeah, which street did you live on during your childhood? And these questions are all about the primary user. So in this case, it would be, all about Isaac's past and Helen is having to so answer these questions. You can't have to shift into Isaac's mindset. Yeah, exactly. And then, so she has to ask him for the answers, which gives him so much more power to just not give the answers. And then suddenly she doesn't have access to their finances. And this type of thing is really common in terms of financial abuse. It's, it's all about controlling the person's access to money or controlling that they have to make money or they aren't allowed to make money. Which bank is this? Do you mind me asking? This is like a pretty standard practice for all banks in America. Right. 
Right. And if someone doesn't have access to their finances, it makes it a lot harder for them to leave an abusive situation. So leave, you need to think about housing. You need to be able to do everything in such a way that they're not going to know that you're doing it, which usually involves having to make financial transactions. And if they're able to see what exactly what you're doing through an online banking software or just restricting your ability to take those, to make those transactions in the first place, then it makes it really, really difficult to leave. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the keys to the kingdom, right? You know, like, especially now as you know, real time banking becomes more prevalent, especially globally, you know, if someone creates a transaction and it shows up on someone else's phone, they can actually get real time information on location stuff. It, exactly. it could totally be used for abuse, which which is what we're hearing. When you were going through the the research part of the project, I know you mentioned some really interesting findings around the abuse of both power, but also in terms of the systems of IoT. Tell me a little bit more about that because that was that was really intriguing for me. Yeah, so Internet of Things or smart home device abuse is a really new area of domestic violence. And, you know, because these devices are so new, there's not a lot of data around how people are misusing them. Most of the information we have about it comes from the people who are working directly with domestic violence survivors. Uh, People in those various support networks are reporting that this is becoming a really common trend. So, for example, um, a big one is abuse through like a Nest thermostat or similar product, any type of smart thermostat uh, temperature setting device. So, you know, you can be away from home and your spouse can be home and the person who's away can set it up to a higher temperature. So in my talk, it's Lisa and Ben are the couple who are going through this. And he is a software developer. He's really into smart home devices and really tech savvy and uh, knows exactly what he's doing with all of these things. And uh, he travels away for client work sometimes. And then Lisa is home alone. And often in the past, this had been a time when she had sort of a break from his abuse. But now with all of these smart home devices, uh, he's kind of got this new way to torment her even when he's not there. So going back to the Nest example, it's not just that the person turns up the thermostat and you know the person at home is suddenly really hot and then they have to go and turn it back down. It's that the perpetrator who's doing this is saying, well, of course I didn't do that. Why would I do that? You're so crazy. You're so paranoid. Why can't you just figure out how these things work? It's, you know, this Nest really isn't that complicated, but you keep messing it up. So that's a lot of making them feel. Yeah, stupid. that's a lot of yeah. what we're seeing is the gaslighting, uh, which is a form of abuse. And gaslighting is when you convince someone that they don't know, they can't trust their own experience, and that they're sort of, to use this ableist term, going crazy, and that really the only person who whose experience can be trusted is the abuser, and that builds up a lot of power in the relationship. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that they can be used in this way. Like you, you see technology and you kind of go, that's a cool piece of kit. Like, you know, I want to buy that. And like, I, I bought a ring doorbell recently and, um, you know, blown away by the potential to answer the doorbell when I'm at work and it saved me a couple of times and having to do the dreaded drive to pick <laughs> up my parcel. But what it's uncovered is this kind of freakiness of where I might go out for my lunch and my wife might call me and kind of go, what time are you going to be back at? And I go, how did you know I left? She's like, oh, you know, we've got motion sensors on the thing. And I was like, oh, wow. It's like, you know, suddenly your time is no longer your time. Mm-hmm. It's their time. And it's it's very hard to get that space. Um, and it's, it can only get worse. Or especially with Alexa, you, you mentioned an interesting case of being able to dial into an Alexa. And I, know, I didn't know this feature existed. 
Tell us about that. Sure. Um, this is a drop-in feature of Alexa. So this is further on in the story of Lisa and Ben. Um, he's, you know, like I said, away for the weekend um, and is abusing her through all of their smart home devices. And uh, she's on the phone talking about this abuse that she's been experiencing with her sister on the phone. And he is listening to her through their Alexa because the Alexa has a feature called drop in, which is where you can call through the Alexa. So uh, the happy path use case for this is that like I've left my phone away somewhere. Maybe I left it at work and then now I've come home or maybe my phone is just out of battery and my husband's trying to call me. He can't reach me through my phone. Mm. So he calls me through the Alexa and then I chat with him through the Alexa and it kind of acts as a phone. The problem with this is that there's no um, consent to picking up the call through the Alexa. So when you get a call on your phone, you have the ability to look at the number or the contact name that shows up and say like, answer it or no. Yeah, exactly. But with the Alexa drop-in feature, at least as of now, there isn't any form of consent. The call just starts. So this means that if you're in a different room and you don't hear the alert, you know, Alexa will say something like you have an incoming call. If you don't hear that, or maybe the volume set really low because the abuser is you know, using it strictly for this purpose, then it basically just becomes a listening device. If they don't say anything, they're just listening to what's going on on the other end, and you might have no idea this is happening. So this becomes another form of surveillance. And it brings me to something that I want to just quickly talk about, because your uh, story about the ring brought it to mind. But the problem is not necessarily with these features, like the feature that you described with the ring, it's a fine feature for a happy path scenario of people who are in a trusting equal relationship where there's not abuse going on. So it's the problem is not necessarily that these features are bad. It's just that there's a lot of assumptions being made about the type of people who are using it and the type of relationships people have. Um, You know, the statistics tell us that domestic violence is not an edge case or even anywhere close to it in any country. So I've done this talk in Australia as well as Canada, and I've gotten deep into the statistics of both those countries as well as, of course, America. And it's a similar picture kind of everywhere that this is really, really common. It's really far from an edge case. And the problem is that designers and people who build these products just aren't aren't thinking about the fact that not everyone is in a safe, healthy, respectful relationship. Yeah, and no, absolutely. Like, and it's, you know, designing for impact um or for intent almost you know like we we have the best intent when we're designing these systems well a lot of designers do anyway like as i'm a service designer so one of the things that i i always try to do is like how might we misuse it so how, how could it be broken you know for bad use and there's instances there that you pointed out that i didn't even know exist so um it just goes to show that you just can't really tell. Like, so how did you find out about these other things? Was it all through anecdotal or through qualitative research? It's been through both. Um, so I've done a lot of research, just scouring the web for anything I can find, especially with something like the smart home devices where it is really new. I'm just looking for any information I can find, any examples. But as soon as I bring up that I do this work, people often have examples, uh, sort of often the example you gave with Ring, where they're like, oh, well, you know, this this hasn't happened to me, but I noticed, you know, someone told me about their Jeep has a built-in geolocation service, but that this person's partner was able to see where they were driving. And they weren't even trying to do this. They weren't trying to stalk their partner or anything. 
but they were like, wow, I had no idea that like, I can just, I could totally stalk my partner through this cheap. So people are often giving me stories like that. But then I also, um, I do have a lot of survivors reach out to me online or they talk to me after I give a talk at a conference and share their stories with me, which is really, really great and very humbling to be trusted with that information. But it is extremely valuable to my work and what I'm doing to have people just tell me about their experiences with technology facilitated abuse. So what's the outcome? So whenever you do these talks, you know, what do you end with? Well, what's the thing that, you know, you'd like people to take home, like in terms of UX designers and service designers and product managers? What's the thing that you you would like? What's your message you'd like them to take away from, you know, designing against domestic violence? You know, what's the thing that they can do? So there's a lot we can do. Um, I created a very simple framework because I was thinking a lot about this. I know I hate it when I go to a talk and they tell you about all of these terrible things that are going on and you're like, oh, wow, that's horrible. And you're really motivated to do something. And then they're like, okay, well now, you know, and it's like, wait, but what, like, how do I, how do I do something with this? Like what's some advice for like bringing this up with an employer, anything like that. So I thought about this question a lot of the impact. And I thought a lot about domestic violence is obviously really, really important. And it's the thing that I'm specifically thinking about, but there are other things we need to think about. We need to think about just being inclusive in general. That's something that Sarah Watcher Betcher has um, been leading a charge on. And she and Eric Meyer uh, created something called stress testing, which I love. It's where you go through the product through the eyes of someone just having a horrible, horrible day. Like they just lost someone close to them and then making sure that the content still works for them. And then of course, being inclusive of different genders, abilities, all of the different people we should be including. Um, so I was like, okay, we need to, we need to be inclusive in general. We need to consider domestic violence. And then there's probably other groups such as survivors of domestic violence that we should consider that I don't personally know about. So I thought a lot about this and was like, how can I come up with something that's going to hopefully include all of these things? And I got really stressed out and overwhelmed because it's a lot. We're asking designers to take on a lot, which is something else I want to talk about. But I came up with this thing called the, um, I call it the framework for inclusive safety. So trying to get at, this is trying to include everyone in an inclusive way, but with a focus on safety, both psychological and physical safety. So it basically involves doing stress testing, which Sarah Washer Betcher and Eric Meyer created. And then yeah, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, great. Um, so doing stress testing and then going through the same process of stress testing, but through the eyes of someone experiencing domestic violence. So that gets at my portion of the work. And then doing something called Black Mirror brainstorming, which a designer named Aaron Lewis came up with. And it's basically, it's just what it sounds like. You know, most people are familiar with the show Black Mirror. You just go through your product and think like, what is the darkest, worst case scenario that I can come up with and really explore that in a more general sense. And then obviously, once you've identified all of those things, you'll go through these three processes, identify all of these ways that your product could be misused and then design for solutions against that to either prevent it from happening or to at least do something to um, empower the survivor going through it. Yeah, that will be extremely powerful. And uh, I think like, you know, it's definitely something I'm, I'm proud to say. I've, I've already included this in a, in a briefing this morning. Like I, I met a client this morning and we spoke about things and I said, oh, look, this is, it's, it's a public service. And um, I said to them, what does this look like from people who are going through domestic abuse? 
I says like, what would the service look like in that, in that instance? And it's something that we're, well, I'm, I've taken on board. I'm going to implement into my project plan straight away. That's incredible. I know. Yeah. So it, it, there's a lot of symbiosis going on here, like between how I came about your work and like my previous work and, and other projects. Now, there was one quote that made me laugh out loud, which was the only point in your talk that I managed to get a laugh. And that was the the Dumbledore quote about there are dark times ahead of us and we must choose what is wrong and what is right. And it it echoed like obviously everyone knows that's from Harry Potter, but it echoes a lot of what Mike Montero has said in his his talks, like our role and our responsibility as a designer and the designer of these things that we are creating and putting out there into the world for people to use. What advice would you give to designers that are designing things um, for their clients or for their businesses, and they know that it's it's not probably going to be, you know, always used for good? What advice would you give them to try and change that? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of different things we can do. Um, one of the best things is to very matter of factly ask what the plan is when the New York Times writes an article about how. Our product was used to stalk someone, to harass someone, to abuse someone. Like, what's the what's the game plan when that happens? Yeah. And kind of get them to think about, yeah, this this could have like a serious impact that could hurt our brand, because sometimes people aren't going to be willing to just do it because it's right. So you can maybe make them think about the money impact. But I also want to recognize because I've been in this situation where I've I've tried really hard, I've appealed to all these different things, and they still haven't gone with the thing that I think they should do. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's only, there's only so much we can do. And there's also a lot of us aren't in a place where we can afford to lose our jobs. Unfortunately, I think this is another thing I've been thinking a lot about is we're working within a system that is really messed up and we're trying to fix things in this like sort of micro way in our micro systems. But the the overall system is like, it rewards just making money at any cost and it really disincentivizes caring about people because why why should we when you know Facebook and Twitter have been getting away with this stuff for years and they've paid some fines but they still exist they're still around no one's in jail yeah and they're booming the share price increases yeah right they're very successful so yeah if you're if you're a person who's not going to be motivated by just doing the right thing and you're more motivated by money and there's nothing in any system any legal system holding you accountable why should you change? So this is something I've been thinking a lot about in terms of, I think there's a role of policy and I'm trying to figure that out. How can designers work with policymakers and start trying to change this whole system that we're working within? Because I think designers do have a lot of power to change these things. Obviously, I believe that, which is why I'm doing this talk and spending all this time on this work. But I think that ultimately we're going to have to change the whole system if we want to actually fix this. Yeah, no, Absolutely. There was one final thing that I wanted to chat to you a little bit more about, and it was supporting yourself through this type of work. But like I've gone through the the process of of researching and and really an interesting space, but also it could be quite damaging to to the researcher and their designer um, in terms of you know the emotional distress and in my case vicarious trauma. Um, how did you protect yourself through this process? Because it's too often not really discussed enough within the design community about how you can protect yourself when researching in, in such, uh, you know, emotionally charged areas. Yeah. Vicarious trauma is so real. I had a lot of help coming from nonprofit, working with kids who were in often really, really tough situations and experiencing a lot of trauma. And then we had a lot of training on how to recognize when we were experiencing vicarious trauma and sort of 
how to deal with that. So I'm mm. really grateful for that experience because it definitely gave me a bit of a head start with some of this. But I think seeing a therapist is really important and not waiting until some horrible, you're going through a mental health crisis because that's when you're just surviving, but you make the most progress in therapy when you're not going through a crisis state. So if you're privileged enough and depending on you know your country's healthcare system, you might not be able to do this. But if you are able to do it, seeking help from a therapist and then seeing them really regularly, that's something that for me has been really important. And then I'm still uh, trying to get better at recognizing Right now I can recognize when I'm going through something and need to take a break. That's what I do is I'll take a break for a few weeks and just not look at any research. And I'm trying to get better at knowing that it's coming instead of just waiting for it to happen. So actually just last week I had a nightmare that my husband was abusive and he's an extremely kind, wonderful, very much not abusive person. But I had this nightmare that he was an abuser and I was like, okay, well, time for a break. (laughs) So recognizing when stuff like that happens is really important. Or there was when I was preparing for doing this talk in Australia and I spent literally all weekends just pouring through articles and things about uh, domestic and family violence in Australia. And I got to this, this is a trigger warning here. If anyone wants to skip ahead 30 seconds, I'm about to share a really awful story, but I read something about a woman whose abusive partner had kidnapped her dog and then drowned her dog. And when it comes to people abusing pets as well as abusing kids and babies and pregnant women, that's where I start to get really, you know, I'm I'm at a point where I can take in a lot of information without it feeling too personal because I'm, I'm used to it. I'm used to hearing a lot of this stuff and I'm able to put it in a box to a point, but that's, that's the point where it leaks out of the box. And I've read the story about this dog and I just was like, started crying. It was like, I have two dogs. So I'm like kind of obsessed with, I love them so much. And I was like, I can't, imagine that happening like oh my god like this horrible man this poor woman and then after that I was like I just closed my laptop and I was like all right it's time to like go cuddle with my dogs and have a glass of wine and watch some parks and rec so yeah definitely recognizing that when you need to stop and then stopping I'm not sure how to recognize that that's coming up that's what I'm trying to get good at now yeah that's really really good advice um and it's it's something that I can I can relate to all right so look Eva we always end the, the episodes with, with three questions, and I hope you don't mind, but the, the three questions from hell is what we've, we've kind of nicknamed it uh, amongst the community. So I'll ask you the first question. Um, what is the one thing that you wish you were able to banish from the industry and why? Uh, I wish I could banish squabbling between designers and developers and any type of like weird competition between them, because I do both design and front end development. So I get to work with both groups and I'm like, we're both great. (laughs) We're both really smart and we just need to like respect each other. And the company I work at, Athlight, does a really good job at everyone respecting each other. And I just wish, you know, I go to other places or people talk about the problems at their workplace and I'm like, gosh, this is all just so stupid. Like we're all on the same team. Yeah, absolutely. One team, one dream. So the second question is... uh, What's the uh, the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? I wish I was better at visual design because I, I focus on UX. I focus on safety and inclusion and front-end development. And my visuals are medium. And I just, there are some people on my team who create such amazing, beautiful things. And I'm like, gosh, I wish I could do that. It's something I really hope to develop as a skill. Yeah, it's there's always someone who's really talented that just makes you envious of them. It's great. Um, and the last question is, and this is uh, something that I know we, we spoke a little bit earlier about, is what advice would you give to emerging design talent for the future? 
everything is a learned skill and there's no magic going on. That's with both design and development. And it's something that I had to learn very slowly over a long period of time. I had a lot of misconceptions and I think a lot of people have misconceptions who are trying to get into it where it just seems like there's some really wild dark magic going on with both design and writing code. And both of those things are just a series of skills that you can learn if you sit down and take the time to learn it. And the only difference between you and someone who codes or designs professionally is that they took the time to learn it and they've had time to learn and practice and you can do that too. Yeah, that's a great answer. So Eva, thank you so much for your time. I know it's like early in the morning for you over in Chicago. And if people want to reach out to you and stay in touch, um, I know I've already started to follow you on every one of my Twitter accounts. What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is epenzimoog, which is my last name. And you can just Google Eva Penzimoog and you'll find it. I'm the only one. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. And uh, I'll actually also put a link to the video that is on YouTube that... Sarah shared out a, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, which how I found you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was really great. Really appreciate it. So there you have it. Thanks for listening to Bringing Design Closer. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is Hate CD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye.